A seller went out to sow seed, and, as, and he sowed. Some seed fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds of the sky came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock. When it grew up, it withered away since it lacked moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And still the other seed fell on good ground. And when it grew, it produced fruit a hundred times what was sown. As he said this, he called out, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. And this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seed along the path are those who have heard and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but having no root, these believe for a while and then fall away in a time of testing. But the seed, oh, and as for the seed that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who, when they heard, they go on their way and they are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of life and they produce no mature fruit. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have hearing, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. And you may be seated. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Thankful to be gathered here with you this Sunday morning. For those of you visiting, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're thankful that you chose to worship with us this morning. We have been steadily making our way through the book of Acts, so I invite you to turn there now, Acts chapter 8. If you remember towards the beginning of this series in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the risen Lord Jesus before his ascension tells his disciples that the gospel is going to go forth to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so last week we saw how Philip goes north to Samaria, in part fulfilling this verse, and proclaims the gospel there. But what was the result? How do the people in Samaria respond? That's part of the focus of today's message. So this morning, I want to preach this text in light of how it instructs and how it convicts us. How does this text confront us? What does God, through his word, want to say to us this morning? And then how should we, as his people, respond? So let's read the first part of the passage. As a reminder, the title of this series is Relentless Gospel, and that is perfect for what we see throughout the book of Acts as the gospel, despite hardships and persecution and sinful opposition, goes forth relentlessly. So Philip, if you look at verses 5 through 7, is preaching, and unclean spirits are being cast out, and the lame and the paralyzed are being healed. Amazing things are happening. So let's hear from God and start reading in verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. And I think there's a change in tone starting in verse 9. Now a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, As he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. 
After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. Verse 16 explains, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we as your people are gathered here to hear from you. And I pray that you would speak through this passage, that you would apply it to our hearts by the power of your spirit, Father. So humble our hearts, instruct our minds. In your sins then we pray. Amen. This morning I want us to compare and contrast what is happening with the Samaritans at large and then Simon particularly. Two kinds of faith are to be seen here. One that saves and one that doesn't. So let's jump in and see the Samaritans' saving faith. My first point is that, saving faith. In verse 5, Luke tells the crowds, or Luke tells us that the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And then in verse 12, he says again, But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. What is true and repeated throughout the book of Acts is that the word of God, applied by the spirit of God, creates the people of God. This is what I preached on last month from Acts chapter 2, and it's true here again and throughout the rest of the book. The word of God, applied by the spirit of God, creates the people of God. But here in chapter 8, there is a delay. There's a delay in the spirit being given. You see, the Samaritans, it says, had believed in the message about Jesus and his kingdom, but they had not yet experienced the Holy Spirit. Now, in the tradition and the denomination that I grew up in, this passage was said to be evidence for a second work or a second blessing or a second filling of the Spirit. And so we were encouraged to pursue hard after that, that we should strive for it, that we should pray for it. Is that what is happening here? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that everything that happens in the book of Acts is to be understood as normative for the church today. And I think that this is one of those scenarios. Why? Because think back to what we talked about last week and what is happening here culturally. Culturally, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. They despised one another. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were half-breed trash because they had intermarried. And of course, the Samaritans, after being called ridiculed with language like that, would respond with their own insults. So they hated one another. They were racist toward one another. But Philip, he's a Gentile. He goes north, is faithful in following the Spirit's guidance, and he goes north to Samaria. He's a Gentile. He goes north to Samaria, and he proclaims the message of salvation there. And the Samaritans believe. They believe the message. They have an interest in this message. And when word gets back to Jerusalem, they send their two most famous apostles, Peter and John, and they go down there to Samaria, and they lay their hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. So what is happening here? You see, in God in his sovereignty directed this to happen so that it might be evident to the church's highest leadership in Jerusalem that the Samaritans are coming into the covenant community. And it's important that these Jewish apostles, these leaders in the church, see this firsthand so they can tell the Jerusalem church. God's people are no longer tied to one ethnicity, but now found in every race and every ethnicity. So that's what I think is happening here. I think that's why the sequence is a little out of order, different than what we experience today. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, what we experience today is that the Holy Spirit is given to us upon true conversion. It is, as Paul says in Romans 8, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, 
if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Apart from the Holy Spirit being in us, we are still dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. So a necessary, vital part of having faith is the Holy Spirit being given to us. Now, with that aside, what's happening in the text? Because the text reads, in this particular city of Samaria, there was a man named Simon. And Simon was a practitioner of the occult, of witchcraft, or your translation might say sorcery. What Daniel preached on this concerning a few months back is true. This type of spiritual activity is demonic, and often what serious proponents and teachers of New Age theology today seek to encourage people to seek out. It's dangerous. And so this city is mesmerized by what Simon is doing. It's clear from verses 9 and 11 that he had amazed the people with what he was doing, and that from the poorest to the richest in the city, they all thought highly of him. In fact, they thought so highly of him that they called him, quote, the great power of God. If ever there was a perfect representation of idolatry, here we see it, esteeming demonic activity as something to be praised. And Martyr, the early historian who was also a Samaritan, recounts in his writings that his countrymen, the Samaritans, quote, revered Simon as the highest God. So this designation was to signify Simon's deity, his status, his prestige, his standing amongst the people. And so Simon had a hold on this town. He had a hold on this region. He had most likely amassed some serious wealth from what he was able to do, and he's comfortable with what he does. But then Philip comes to town, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the work of Christ, and spirits are cast out, and the lame are healed, and there is a shift in allegiance. Simon, who is called the great power of God, now gets to truly see the great power of God, and he realizes that what he has simply does not compare. What precipitated this change? Well, the text tells us that they believed the message Look at verse 12. They believed Philip. What did they believe about Philip? The next clause tells us they believed his proclamation about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So yes, during this time, God was attesting to his work uh, with miraculous signs and wonders, but it was the message applied by the Spirit of God that saved. This is a right picture of saving faith. So what are we talking about when we say saving faith? We get up here and we ask you to have faith. As you evangelize, you tell people that they need to have faith. What are we talking about? Ultimately, fundamentally, we're talking about a change. A change has taken place for the Samaritans here as they believe the message that Philip proclaimed. They go from idolaters to disciples, from heathens to saints. What has taken place? They were converted. Their hearts were changed. To describe this, the Bible uses the language of regeneration, of recreation, and transformation the idea is the same across the board. Something in us needs to be recreated, redone, really reborn. This is Jesus' point to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he tells him three times in that chapter about the necessity of rebirth. Verse 7, straight to the point. You must be born again. There is a necessity to this. It must happen. And I realize that this message is not popular today, that we're often told that we are great in and of ourselves and that there's nothing about us that needs to change. Well, that is simply not true. And that only leaves you with your own self-righteousness to stand before God on that day. 
There needs to be a change. Saving faith must occur. So in saving faith, we're talking about a change. We're talking about conversion. We're talking about a new heart being given to us. But what is exactly is faith? Well, let me give you a definition. Faith is complete and wholehearted trust that God will keep his promises in the gospel. Faith is complete and wholehearted trust that God will keep his promises in the gospel. The Holy Spirit initiates this faith and it secures and seals this faith in our hearts. And what are the promises of the gospel? That in Christ we are new creations, that the old sinful self is done away with, and that our sins have been placed on him as our substitutionary sacrifice. And because that sacrifice was pleasing in God the Father's sight, then Christ's righteousness is now given to us, and we are deemed worthy to stand before the Lord. It is, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the real, tangible experience and the confession of the Christian here today. We have faith in what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. We believe in him. We trust in him. Not ourselves, not what we can do, but in him. So friends, faith is not something that you influence by how much emotion you put into it. God doesn't evaluate our faith by the intensity of our emotion. Faith fundamentally is trust. And it's only as good as the person whom that trust is placed in. Each of us knows this to be true. It's why we don't let strangers watch our kids. We have no foundation of trust with them. It's why trust is a foundational part of marriages, and without it, they crumble. We have to be able to trust one another. And it's why the betrayal of our trust tends to hurt us the most, because our trust in another is a vulnerable thing. In a sinful and fallen world, we can almost become jaded and almost become used to being let down, become used to our trust being broken today. Our faith is placed in the one thing that cannot be done away with, the one thing that cannot fail us, the one thing that is truly and completely worthy of our trust, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is his blood that was shed that is the grounding of our faith. How can you trust God? How can you know that he loves you? Because he sent his son to die for you. Look to the cross. So yes, as we go through life, our faith waxes and wanes. And yes, our faith is fickle based on our emotions. And if we're having a good day or a bad day or a good month or a bad month or if we're suffering or on the mountaintop, but praise God that the fickleness of our faith or the intensity of our faith does nothing to change our standing before him. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the grounding and the foundation of our faith. Not how much we do or do not have. It's not up to you. It's up to him. It's not what we did. It's what he did. We have to pull our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and behold the slain and risen lamb. Behold him in his glory. For he is the foundation, the grounding, the cornerstone of our faith. The old hymn is true. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that where your faith is this morning? Is that true of you? Friends, it's not up to us. It's not up to what we feel or what we don't feel in this Christian life. Saving faith is grounded in the assurance that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And because of what he did, we are secure in the love of God. That's saving faith. Do you have it? But sadly, as we read through Acts chapter 8, there's another type of faith. I think it's evidenced here by Simon. 
The second point we need to look at this morning is superficial faith. First we see saving faith, and then there is superficial faith. I'm going to read from verse 18 to 25. The definition of superficial, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is existing or occurring only on the surface. Another definition that they provide is appearing to be true or real until examined more closely. So we have existing or occurring only on the surface or appearing to be true or real until examined more closely. For us, the label of superficial is an insult. If somebody called us that, we would take offense. It's a derogatory term that undermines who we are. But in terms of this story, this seems to be the case for Simon. This is what his faith is showing itself to be, superficial. It appeared to be real until he was examined more closely. The text reads that when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money. Remember, he most likely amassed a good bit. And he said, give me this power also so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Many of you know that this is where the term simony comes from, which is the practice of buying and selling positions or authority within the church. When someone seeks to elevate their own position, their own authority within the church, even offering money to do so, that is a grave thing indeed. But Simon's superficial faith in this passage can be characterized mainly by two things. And the first is this, a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. A misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. Simon thought that he could buy the power of the Holy Spirit. What he saw when the apostles laid their hands on the Samaritans were probably various signs and gifts. He wanted control over it. And that is a serious misunderstanding of the role and the work of the Spirit. It is not something to be controlled by us, not something to be called upon by us whenever we desire or will it. No, the Holy Spirit is purely a gift from God our helper, the third person of the Trinity. The power of the Holy Spirit is not for sale, nor can it be franchised out to different people. Simon's sin here is a desire to possess spiritual power for personal ends. Think on that. A desire to possess spiritual power for personal ends. We love to control things, and it's no different for Simon here. He sees the Spirit as another thing to add to his magic performance, the occult practices that he was known for, but he had no idea the spiritual issues at stake. You see why Philip came to to Samaria proclaiming another. Simon was there proclaiming himself, and Peter's rebuke shows this misunderstanding. May your money perish with you because you thought you could get the gift of God with money. The Spirit is a gift And it aids in our sanctification, 
conforming us into the image of Christ. This is within us, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And then it equips us with the gifts for the work of ministry, to serve the local church here, to serve the church at large throughout the world. The Holy Spirit is a helper, an advocate, a gift, not ours to wield and bestow as we see fit. So friends, beware, be very wary of the false preachers and teachers asking for your money so that you can get a blessing in return from the Spirit. Asking you to plant a seed and watch as the Holy Spirit does something extra in your life. What kind of nonsense? They're lavish. It never ends from them. They always want you to give more and more while they live over there lavishly. It's just a veiled form of simony today. So I think Peter's rebuke is just as applicable. We just change a word. May their money perish with them because they thought that they could give the gift of God with it. But secondly, and even more serious, Simon's superficial faith is characterized by false belief. Yes, he misunderstood the Holy Spirit, but I think that there is false belief here. Friends, as we mature in our Christian life, one of the hardest things to work through is whenever those close to us that we would consider brothers or sisters in Christ, they fall away from the faith. They no longer call themselves a disciple of Jesus, no longer consider themselves to be following him. They turn to something else instead. I've been working through this myself with one of the guys who discipled me in college, and it's agonizing to see, and you simply wonder, how? How could I miss it? How do they seem to be so sincere and genuine in their faith and have such a complete change now? Many of you have seen this yourselves. False belief is rampant in the church today, but the stories of a brother or sister falling away from the faith, whether you experience it yourself or you hear of it, they never get easier to hear of. Now, my goal this morning is not to explain a rationale of if they were ever truly saved or not. I think other passages address that. My goal is to exposit this text, and I think it has some serious implications for false believers. Whenever and wherever... God is at work throughout the world, or God is at work amongst his people. There are not only genuine responses, what we're calling saving faith this morning, but there are also counterfeit ones, what we're calling superficial faith. If you are here and you are struggling with your, your faith, you're, you're questioning it, but you have a persistent devotion to Christ and to his church, and you are praying and you're seeking to trust day by day, then this warning in this passage about superficial faith, I don't think is as directed towards you. And I trust that the Spirit of God is at work in you. But often pride comes before the fall. And this passage is directed at those who see their faith, they see their Christianity, their attendance at a church as a means to an end, as a boost to their own righteousness, as a feather in the cap of this life. And if that's true of you, then that reveals that you will miss out on the next life, eternal life. Because your faith, like Simon's, is a false one. It's superficial. You think you are saved, and yet, like Simon, you are, quote, bound by wickedness. And in 2,000 years, false belief has gone nowhere. It's been evident throughout church history. It's evident in the church at large today, and dare I say, it's evident in this room today. You see, the insidious thing about a false believer is that they're often veiled as a true believer. That's why the surprise of a friend or a loved one denouncing their faith, it cuts so deep. You never see it coming. Superficial faith can look like saving faith. Simon himself, the text tells us, professed faith. Luke says in verse 13 that even Simon believed. He evidenced as well this belief through baptism. 
I'm guessing that the apostles also laid their hands on him. He appeared for all intents and purposes to be a part of the true Samaritan converts. But Jesus' words in Matthew 7, I think, are just as applicable here. You will know them by their fruit. Simon makes a grab for the power of the Spirit, and Peter sees the truth of what's happening, and he says, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Being bound by wickedness is characteristic of an unregenerate heart, not a child of God. Simon is showing his faith to be a false one. But he believed. He was baptized, you might say to me, and you're right. But the interesting thing about how the New Testament uses the word for believe, pistuo, is that it covers a broad range of responses to God's word. It's used in this interesting scene with Jesus in John chapter 2. It says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Notice as well the same word in James chapter 2. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. It's almost as if John, or James is writing, and he's saying at the end, and they actually shudder. There is saving faith, a true faith, and there is such a thing as superficial faith in the New Testament. It's a belief that is grounded in something else other than Christ and his work. But perhaps the most sobering text on this issue is found in Matthew 7, when Christ prophesies about religious people, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Our souls should at the very least heed this warning, should they not? They should tremble a little bit at the warning implied here, should we not? Notice the threefold repetition of in your name in that passage. They were doing all these things in Jesus' name. But well intentions, moral living, being a nice person all in the name of Jesus never saved a soul from hell. Superficial faith, superficial Christianity or discipleship proclaims to do a lot of things in the name of Christ or for the name of Christ, but it is not a faith that our God recognizes. In Luke chapter 8, where Daniel did our scripture reading before the sermon, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he says that some fell on rocky ground and that when it grew up, it withered away because of a lack of moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and when it grew, the thorns grew with it and choked it. But having no roots... They fall away after a time of testing. And then the seed that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go on their way, and they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life and produce no mature fruit. Is this not so descriptive of superficial faith? Is this not the description of those who will cry out on that day, Lord, Lord, look at all we did. We did it for you. Is this not true of those who profane the name of Christ because while claiming to be a Christian, they lean on their own righteousness instead of his? They show themselves to have no root in Christ, of loving the idols of today more than Christ, of simply giving lip service to Christ. My friends, as I was saying in point number one, we need new hearts. We must be converted. And the reality is that we cannot do this ourselves. This is the truth that the scriptures proclaim. We can't do it. God has to do it. 
It's not an issue of us liking Jesus. We don't just need a nice heart. We need a new heart. We don't just need sincere faith. We need saving faith. We don't need a 20-year-old decision for Christ with no visible change. We need a life marked by discipleship and a love for God and a love for his people and a love for all people. He must be your Lord and Savior or you too might be crying out on that day, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me. In closing, allow me to give us a few points of application to respond rightly to God's word today. The first is this, praise. Praise. Friends, even in light of the warning of superficial faith, there is still immense praise to be given to God by any Christian in here. Why? Because in his immense and infinite love for you and in his providence, he chose to redeem us, a sinful and wayward people. You know the condition of your heart. I know the vileness of mine. For those with regenerate hearts here today, though new hearts, may they overflow once more in praise to God for the astounding grace and mercy that he's shown us. We didn't deserve anything. And he sent his son to die for us. The psalmist is right. Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would consider him. Romans 11, God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. A regenerate heart, a person who has experienced saving faith cannot but be astounded and floored that they would be a recipient of such grace. May our hearts praise God for who he is and what he has done. Secondly, examine. Praise and then examine. Second Corinthians 13.5 instructs us to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Other possible renderings of that last phrase are unless you are disqualified or unless you are counterfeit. We could even say this morning unless you are superficial. Now, I offer no judgment on if you're superficial or not. That is God's role and his alone. So I pray, though, that if you are here and you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that you wouldn't ignore it. And my third application point will be more applicable for you. But for those with new hearts here, let us be aware of the subtle pools of a superficial faith, a laziness that can creep into our discipleship, a love of other things that can always tempt our hearts, For Simon, it was power and prestige and his desire for authority. But maybe for us, it's a desire for more money and what it'll give to us, what it can provide for us. Or maybe for us, it's a desire for more recognition at work. And if that happens, then everything in my life will just be better. Or maybe, if you're anything like me, that creeping idol into our hearts is our own family. I wrestle with this often. I love and I treasure my family, but the scariest prayer I pray over my kids each night is that God would use them for his glory. Even if that means that they go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the name of Christ and I see them once every five years, as hard as that would be, do I consider it worth it? Do I consider the saving faith of others worth it? I pray that I do, but instead I try to pray, God, you are good. And your name needs to be proclaimed among the nations. Use me, use my wife, use my family in any way possible to further your glory. That's where I'm tempted with a superficial faith. Where is it for you? We have to examine ourselves and be on guard against this. And then lastly, repent. Repent. The beauty of the gospel 
And the amazing thing about God is that he always extends an open invitation to turn from our sinful ways and to turn to him instead. Repentance is always an option, no matter the sin. Don't get me wrong, it will be costly. It'll often hurt as well because sin hurts. But repentance is always an option. Even in Peter's rebuke to Simon, he offers out the hope of repentance. Verse 22, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. Now Simon's repentance, I would argue, ultimately didn't amount to much. And it seems like church history supports that from what the church fathers wrote about him. But that doesn't have to be the case for you. Repentance, real repentance, is always an option. So may you turn now to the God who beckons you to come to him. Respond with faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Trust in him. But I'm too bad, you might say, you'll tell me, or I'm too sinful. There's no way that God could love me after what I've done. Well, praise God that his love isn't dependent on what you have or have not done. It's dependent on the sacrifice of his son and what he did. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves. Why is God willing to save you? Because he loves you. He truly does. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead. But in his love for you, he poured that wrath out on his son. That old saying that kind of has infiltrated the churches, God has done all that he could do, the rest is up to you, is so far from the truth presented in these scriptures that it deserves no consideration. If the rest was up to you, if the rest was up to us, we would fail and we would be like Simon and bound by wickedness. No, the death of Christ was not an attempt to redeem sinners. It was an accomplishment to do so. We sing that Jesus paid it all, and last I, last I heard, all means all. So turn now to the God who paid it all for you through his son, Jesus Christ, and repent. Oh, that we would be a church marked by true repentance. Would you pray with me? Father, you know uh, how much I've wrestled with this text this week, and you know how much it has afflicted me. I pray simply that your spirit would be at work in this room. I pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted. I pray that you would remind them that faith isn't what we feel, but faith is in a person and an action that has been done. It is secure. So encourage the faint-hearted this morning, God. I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves, to see where we are quietly being lulled to sleep by a superficial faith. God, cause our eyes and our hearts and our minds to be awake once more and to recognize those things. Cause us to repent of those things. And lastly, God, I pray that as we sing this song of commitment to you, that we would respond in praise. The Christians here would respond in praise in what God, through Jesus Christ, has done for them. We love you, Father. Thank you so much. In Christ, and we pray. Amen.